What is the secret to renovating without blowing the budget and overcapitalizing? How lucrative is flipping property, really? Where do most inexperienced renovators go wrong? There's a love it or leave it calculator because sometimes you're better off renovating your house and other times you're better off selling that house <laughs> and moving to a new one. Yeah. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au There's a certain romance, if you like, attached to the idea of renovating, which is encouraged by a whole genre of TV shows and celebrity flippers. But deep down, surely we must all know it's not as easy as it looks. On the ground, I've seen some renovations go horribly wrong as people underestimate the costs, overestimate their abilities and create a finished product that falls flat with buyers. I've also seen some hugely successful renovations, which begs the question, what did they know that the others didn't? Today, we're going to learn some of those secrets as we talk to Rebecca Morgan, no relative, co-founder of Build Her Collective and CEO of, is it Beeren Projects? Baron, yep, Baron projects, <laughs> which focuses on high-end renovation and construction in Melbourne's inner north. And Rebecca has worked for 14 years in construction management before becoming a developer herself and is passionate about sharing knowledge and experience both as a tutor at Swinburne University and through the courses and events run by Build Her Collective. Welcome, Rebecca. We're very keen to gain an understanding of what it takes to build and renovate successfully. Oh, thank you, Veronica and Chris. Thank you for having us. Rebecca, great to have you on. I guess I hate to be stereotypical, but, you know, the construction industry, the property industry is very blokey and it's all about, you know, men. How how have you sort of, you know, paved your way and what got you started in this construction industry and sort of make it your own? Yeah, I mean, I have always loved construction. Actually, I find that women have a really good sense of what they want a home to look like. So I'm a registered builder, (laughs) so that probably makes it a little bit easier for me than, say, other people when they're renovating, but we all start somewhere. I guess, to me, the difference between someone who thinks they can do it but it doesn't come off and someone who who can pull it off is learning. (laughs) And kind of taking, you know, listening to podcasts like yours, taking all the information around them and kind of distilling that into a product and realizing that when you're renovating a house, there's there's a lot of moving factors and you've got to have that flexibility. So I know a little bit about Build Her, but what our listeners might not, or some of them do, some of them might not, but give us a bit of an elevator pitch. What's What's been happening there? Yeah, so, so Build Her Collective is a business that we run. It's basically an online course to help you renovate or build your own home. We set it up because we were having, you know, Krabashny and I both worked in the construction industry. We, I mean, we ultimately set it up because we were drinking wine in Italy and thought it would be a good idea. Those are the days. That's every yeah. good idea. Mm. But... We had people coming to us and they were having big issues. And from our outside point of view, we could see that it actually wasn't always the builder's fault. Mm. And the problem was happening earlier. And these people were really smart. Like they were, you know, top of their field, lawyers, solicitors, accountants, lots of really intelligent people. But it seemed that when it came to running a renovation or building their own home, they were just stuck. Clueless. (laughs) Like clueless. But I don't know why, but in Australia, we have this kind of feeling that we should be able to, it's like our given right that we can kind of turn up to site and renovate our house. And that should be something we can do. Mm. (laughs) We should all be able to kind of, you know, cut the timber and throw up a stud (laughs) frame. And, And as women, we should all be able to decorate it perfectly. Yeah. And and it extends to, well, before that even, it's we all just think it's our God-given right to know how to buy property or buy ourselves right. without knowing anything. So it's the same problem by yeah. the sounds of it. What were some of the big things that you, you mentioned though? Like you saw these mistakes that they, they were making. Like 
Veronica sort of alluded to some of my uh, paranoid fears at the moment doing a big reno. Like, uh, am I going <laughs> to overcapitalize? Is it going to hit the market <laughs> when I try to sell? It's my style, what that market's going to want. You know, so you can easily make a lot of mistakes, right? Overspend, you know, you know, waste money, make mistakes. What were some of the big ones you saw that people were making where you thought you just didn't need to do that, that you could have saved yourself a hell of a lot of money or you've just missed a big opportunity? Yeah, well, there's kind of two camps. So there's the people that are doing it for their own home. So Build Her started with people who are doing it for their own home, but obviously yep. we were developing for profit. And so, you know, it didn't take too long before people were like, well, how do we do that? That's actually what we want to do. We mm. love renovating. Can you teach us that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I've done a lot of learning about it. And and you guys, you know, like we all know our little secret sauce. So there's a whole heap of things that go into that. You know, it's the same as when you're buying a property. I guess starting with buying a property is really great. Yeah. You know why something <laughs> yeah. hits the mark or doesn't hit the mark. Yeah. And also not all properties deserve to be renovated. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think that what uh, I see a mistake that people just assume that, or particularly if they're at a low price point, they just buy, you know, the, the cheapest thing they can find and often it's a reason it's sat there unrenovated for years and years and years is because, it, the cost to renovate and the actual benefit, the the end result is just not going to be worth it. So nobody actually does it. But, you know, I think a lot of people when they're looking specifically to renovate, a lot of people are starry-eyed about that. But do you think it's actually possible to properly cost a renovation before you buy a property? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and mean, that, look, that's an interesting thing. So when we're renovating, especially for profit, there's a few unknowns. We never know what we're going to buy for. We can kind of guess it or estimate what we're willing to spend, but we never know really where we're going to sit until we actually purchase it. Then we've got what we're going to do with it and the construction price, so how much it's going to cost that. And there's various ways that we can work that out, but we're all still making assumptions and estimates. We have Mm. to because there's no way to know what a bill costs until after you've spent all that money. And finally, we know that what you sell a house for is not fixed It's not like a car that you can, you know, roll out and they're worth X amount of dollars. You can shop around, maybe get a couple of grand off. It's what someone's willing to pay on the day. Yeah. And there's market forces as well. I mean, you know, because obviously renovating a building takes time and the conditions, the market conditions at the time you start that build and those that are in play at the end of that build can be vastly different. Luck plays a huge part in that, but they don't tend to stay constant and, you know, and, and what I see in a rising market is people just sort of, they factor in their profit is, is basically in price rises. It's not actually in, you know, what but that's not really profit either. No. I mean, this is the thing. Sometimes we see people, they'll come to us and they'll go, oh, yep. look, this house has made a profit of a million dollars. Oh, that's really good. How long have you had it? 10 yeah. years. And I'm like, okay. So the first thing we need to do is when we're we're factoring how much money we've made out of a renovation, you can actually only ever take an estimated value at the time you started, right? It's yeah. about the value that renovation adds, not the value that the land's gained in the interim. Hmm. It's a massive point because, you know, you look at the just renovating versus not renovating you'd always assume, oh, we should just renovate it, et cetera. But sometimes if you just hold this older house that's rentable, you get all the market growth. You don't have any of the risk of renovation. The renovation gets old as well. You know, it it loses value pretty much the day that you do it. So sometimes it's best just to let it sit there. And it's always tempting to renovate your investment properties, but it's actually sometimes best just to leave them there unless you need to manufacture equity because the market does potentially a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, there's a lot of different strategies out there and I guess it all starts with understanding the game and understanding your numbers and kind of understanding what your ultimate outcomes are. And, And this is really tricky because it changes over time with our family circumstances changing over time. Mm. So we, we normally go into buying a a property with an idea of what we want to do with it, right? That idea then develops (laughs) over time, unless you're doing kind of quick, uh, quick flips. And when I say flip, I just want to clarify this because developing is kind of a dirty word or can be a dirty word, but it doesn't have to be. Traditionally, we think of flipping property is we go in, we tart it up, we might paint some tiles, do a, you know, a cheapest possible renovation and then put it on the market again. 
But it's a different time to say 20 years ago when that may have worked. A, all of our aspirations are higher. Like we, we see so much inspiration all the time. We want more as consumers, mm-hmm. but we're also more savvy. It doesn't take long to look at what you bought it for and what the condition of the property was. And mm. then they're going to do a quick yeah, that's right. calculation. Yeah. And I've heard you guys do this as well. Like it's like, oh, that renovation would have cost about that much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And buyers are doing this all the time. Like, oh, they, they spent 200 grand on that renovation. They're not going to factor in holding costs. They're not going to factor in stamp duty, settlement, sales costs. And they're yep. going to want to spend what they think is fair for that person to make. <laughs> That's funny. That's in a normal market, in a rising not market. market. Not right now. Doesn't yep. matter. Yeah. <laughs> that all right goes now, out the window. Yeah. Um, now people are buying all types of things. It's an interesting sort of nuance there that the buyer will spend what they think is a fair profit. <laughs> And and when there's there's time to make these decisions, and when there's more power in the buyer's hands, that's exactly what buyers do. That's quite a funny observation. Well, it is, isn't it? Well, client was trying to buy this property. It was a couple actually, one in Sunshine Coast, just a few weeks ago, and I'm like, wow, that's a big price. It's nice, Renault. It's you know, got the pool, the grass, and it's a good location. I'm like, you anyway, know, so I jump onto RP Data and I look at some old photos, and I'm like, I actually haven't done a Renault. And it's like, you know, over double what it was a few mm. years ago. And I'm thinking it was the Renault that done a lot of the price gain. And yep. I'm like, actually, all they've really done is moved that and put a new door on there. And I'm like, oh, God, this person's going to make a mozza if they sell it. My client didn't buy it in the end because of just the heat and, you know, potentially the road it was on. But, like, I was just like, sometimes you can easily think it's the Renault that's causing the, the price gain, but a lot of it is just the market, you know what I mean? It wasn't the Renault uh, that's, you know, unless you do those background checks. But you don't, you can't predict it, right? So at the beginning of this lockdown, you know, maybe say February, March last year, everyone was terrified. It's like Mm. we'd bought some stock. I'm sure you'd bought stock for people as well. And, um, you know, we were sitting there going, we don't know. I don't know. Mm. I have no idea whether the market's going to fall apart or not or if it's going to go. Like we're, we're yep. all making our best predictions, but we haven't been in a global pandemic before. So you can't rely on on price rise and gain to continue to hold you up. You've really got to change the value proposition when you're renovating and make sure that you're holding kind of the land value and the increase there because as soon as you go to buy something else, it's already at that upper level again, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> you don't take that money out and bank it, especially if you want to do it continually. You take that money out and you've got to buy something else. And if you can't buy something for for less than that original value, that's why it's important for that, you know, difference and to change yeah. the value proposition. So if you're spending half a million dollars on a renovation, you want to be making you know, at least 200, 300, 500, more than that. Yeah. Depends on what you're doing and what kind of market you're in because that's a profit. That's been harder and harder to achieve though. And certainly what I see in a rising market, and I've always seen this, is two things around this topic. One is that the difference between the unrenovated property and the renovated property gets smaller. Pushed, yeah. Because people go for the renov- unrenovated thinking that's their only way into a, a heated market and then they underestimate the costs to actually do the renovation. And secondly, the difference between a really good renovation and an average renovation, that difference shrinks as well. And, you know, and one of the things that I really focus on with our clients is, A, you've got, you got to get an A-grade property. So <laughs> it's actually one of, our, one of our reviews recently said that we're biased towards A-grade property. I thought that was funny. But... <laughs> You know, you, you've really got to buy, like you said, the land value is is a real part of it and that's obviously where it's located and how valuable land is in that, in that place but there's whatever's on it, you know. So I noticed with your developments, for instance, it seems to be that you buy period homes, you know, more than you don't and then do a renovation to add to those because there's a scarcity in that, right? Yeah, so you guys love talking about scarcity and we do too. It's, it's, it's can you replace this? Yeah. Right? And so... If I do this renovation, do I think, given what I'm doing, that they can go out and replace this by something else that's going to be like Mm. this? No. Okay, so now I've got scarcity. People are going to fight for it Mm. and they'll pay 
a fair value that people don't pay over, but you're creating the value out of that as well, right? If it's a brand new house, people are going to go, okay, well, I could build that. Mm. Yeah. In some ways, unless you're doing something that they don't think they could achieve or unless the build is clever or speaking to them in a way that they don't think they can make that happen. If you just give them what they think they can do, oh, yeah, I could do that, then they really don't want to pay you for that. (laughs) Is there a certain price point where you think, you know, trying to flip and make money in renovations is extremely hard and the risk versus the reward is very little? Yeah, because it's so easy to overcapitalize on a two hundred thousand dollars property, right? Because the labor, the materials, and you know, there's a certain price point where people are willing to pay in that suburb, and it's very hard to like make money. I imagine. Where do you sort of think that the sweet spot is to start to play in sort of renovations to make a decent profit? I mean, I I really struggle with one size fits all and kind of blanket advice because there are people that can do a whole heap of things and they're really good at and they will buck it, you know. And so I'll say in my market, uh, a kitchen would normally cost somewhere between 40 and 60 grand. And then I'll get a whole heap of people go, I did my kitchen for five grand. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, well, no, I I know that. (laughs) And and no one will buy buy a house with that kitchen in this suburb. (laughs) Right. But there's, there's, Time. So basically, what are we looking at? We're looking at labor. Yeah. So the hours that it takes and the labor market changes across Australia. People will pay more or less for labor. And then we're looking at materials, what materials you're using. Mm-hmm. Suburbs sometimes dictate what materials should be used for those suburbs. So in one suburb, it might be fine to have laminate bench tops. And in another suburb, you really will need a marble or a natural stone to kind mm. of hit that wow factor. So you kind of need to be an expert in your area. And you guys are amazing because you guys look across Australia and you, you're experts in many, many different areas. I can't do that. I'm like, I know my market because it takes such a long time yeah. to get to know a market, this street versus that street. And I hear you talking about it, that beachfront and here and, you know, that one's got maybe something untoward at the end of it that people who are in that area won't want to go near. But if you're looking at it on paper, it looks okay. So I kind of think you need to be an expert in the area or become an expert in the area you want to do this. Mm. Um, Because if you just kind of look at it on paper and you go, okay, well, that one sold for 2 million and that one four streets away, you know, is at 1 million and I could do a renovation and hit that, it may or may not be right. The material things are really interesting. Like labor, you're right. You you can sort of negotiate that, especially if you, you know, you don't want to always go for the cheapest. You want to one who's going to give a quality product, but at a fair sort of market rate, right? And then they've also got a few offsiders that are at a cheaper rate to, you know, help do the legwork. On the material side, do you sort of like, try to do that yourself in terms of the margin that builders or tradies that will add on? Do you like try to? Oh, so this is a bit different. So I'm a registered builder. So that's one thing, but we, we buy a lot. So it depends what we're doing. So we've got, we teach a few different models. One model is kind of engaging a builder. Another is a blended builder model, which is kind of working alongside a builder to create the outcome and kind of helping source because builders are really busy. So they're they're not going to ring around 15 different suppliers and find the cheapest of that (laughs) product. They just, they don't have time for that. There's no value in that. But if this is your hard-earned money and you know that that five grand that you save by doing that is, you know, takes you three months to save, then it's worth it for you to make those mm. phone calls. Mm. So blended build her can be a good way to work, but you've got to kind of negotiate that contract up front. And another way would be owner building. Owner building doesn't always save money because you don't always know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. It's uh, it's like, yeah. I mean, I've done three renovations and I say that, but I've never actually ha- hit a na- hammer on a nail, you know. <laughs> So I've worked, I've engaged three builders to renovate. (laughs) But, I mean, you've got the two options when you're engaging those builders. You've got the fixed price contract um, or sort of the cost plus. I mean, you're a builder, Rebecca. I mean, what's your sort of thoughts on that discussion? Uh, I'm always a little bit worried about cost plus because there's really no motivation to bring that cost down. Mm, So you really want to be working alongside that builder. So cost plus means that it's whatever the materials cost, 
plus the labour of of the people who are working on it and then the builder gets a margin on top. That's cost plus contract. Mm. So there's a few things. You're not allowed to do a cost plus contract in, in Victoria on a build that's under a million dollars that's new so it doesn't need to be a renovation. But sometimes it's really hard to factor in what it's going to cost to to renovate the front of a house. Actually, let's touch on that for a second. One of the things that we see people come up with all the time is they'll go into a house and then they struggle to estimate how much it's going to cost to renovate that house. Mm. Mm. Do you guys have that problem with your clients? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, even, and- <laughs> even for me, I was like, oh, the garden's going to cost X. And, got it. <laughs> and then we got started. I'm like, oh, no, that's not right. That was way uh, under. <laughs> double that. Oh, no, it's 2.5 times that. <laughs> And, yeah, you just don't know the time and the, you know, when you're fiddling and then when you set a certain standard, you've sort of got to keep it going. Like if you renovate the first room of your house really beautifully, you're like, oh, God, now I've got to do the next room. And money can just very quickly run out because you just, uh, yeah, you just completely underestimate the the standard you set, I guess. Well, I always remember that ad where the guy sort of, pulls a little sort of cord, a little bit of frayed in the plaster, the whole wall falls off, you know. And so I think that there's all the unknowns that people have no idea. It's like people, you know, giving an idea about what it costs to render a house and they don't realise you've got to take off everything and mm. then and then scaffolding and, and then reaffix everything, you know what I mean? Like they just got no idea about what leads up to whatever job they want to do and then what, mm. what comes after. But they also want to be able to tell them. So they want to be able mm. to ring someone and say, oh, how much is it going to cost to renovate yeah. this house without working True. out what they actually want to do? You know, oh, this conversation, I'm sure you've had this one before. Yep. I just want to put a room on the back of the house. How much will that cost? <laughs> you know, okay, well, cool. So does it have a kitchen? Does it have a bathroom? Yeah. Is it a laundry room? Yeah. Is, is it, it just a, a room? Is it like how big <laughs> the room is? Is it like are we – and so all these little factors kind of give information about what you should be allowing and you've kind of got to have your end game in mind. But the point is you can actually start to make reasonable assumptions by just creating a, a list of what you want to do and allocating some costs. So a lot of people don't mm. want to put any effort in, but they want the answer. So if you're going into a house, and let's say we're going to take a simple one here. We're just going to do an internal renovation, right? We're not going to take any external walls. When we go into that house, we might go into the first room. We go, okay, so I need to replace the blinds. I'm going to need to patch the plaster. I'm going to need to replace maybe rewire or replace the light fittings. The carpet needs doing. I'm going to need to paint it. What else do I want to do? You might want to put some joinery in. Right? (laughs) You know, wardrobes, right? So if you actually just make a list and start Mm. putting some costs against them, you will see that those costs add up really quickly. But you know, when you go, oh, it'll cost 200 grand to do that, it feels like that's a really big lump of money. And it may be, it depends what you want to do with it and what you're hoping to achieve. And what about the dollar per square metre rule? Square metre. <laughs> well, so you know, when people say, oh, it's, it's $3,000 yeah. a square metre to build or it's going to, upstairs is going to be 5,000 a square metre for argument's yeah. sake. Well, I mean, that's a really good place to start for sure because you've mm. got to use something. What it won't help you with is renovations internally and you need really volume or scale to actually use those rates. Mm. So if you're putting on a 100 metres renovation and it's yeah. in a given area and you've you've checked this price with a few builders or if you're building new, you could probably use some of these rates and it'll give you a bit of a cooey, right? Mm. So you'll be within a distance, plus or minus distance. But if you haven't designed it, that can't be known you could probably this is the other thing most people can probably achieve that sort of budget it's whether they want to or whether they'll make those changes in the finishes to achieve it so that may be going okay well instead of that 150 dollar a square meter flooring i'm happy to shop around get a second and and use a 50 dollar that's not quite the colour I wanted, but it's perfectly mm. good carpet and we'll use that. But most people will go, oh, no, but but I really need that more expensive one. And then they go, I don't understand why it's over budget. Builders are, you know, they're so yeah. expensive these days. I'm <laughs> like, well, it's kind, of, it's kind of a bit of both, right? It's like we want a, more. But with a fixed yeah. price contract, that shouldn't happen, right? Where, no, do, where do the blowouts happen yeah. there? 
Okay. So that the, the fixed price contract, the blowouts happen in the beginning. So mm. what you, what you get with a fixed price contract is you do all your design work up front. I hope I'm not going too fast for people, but you're going to engage your design team. So that might be a designer or an architect or a interior designer, whatever that is. And you'll specify all the materials, fixtures and finishes up front, and then you'll go to market. So that's your area of risk because it's all well and good when you're designing and you think you've got it under control, Mm -hmm. but your designer is not an expert in the build cost. They're just not. Because, you know, they're taking things to builders, but it's not their job to cost projects. So Mm -hmm. sometimes they're not aware, you know, some are really good at this and others aren't, but some of them aren't aware of the what the structural change will do or the difference between Mm -hmm. the cost of a slab or a a timber frame, you know, like, you know. (laughs) It's chicken and egg though, isn't it? It is. So in that case... You'll get a really good price, but it might have blown out 200 before you begin, but hopefully you'll stay in budget at the end. And I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess it's also true the build. I mean, you've got to have a pretty imaginative sort of design mind thinking to know what you really want to do to add the most value and to, to live a certain way in that property up front on a property that's unrenovated, right? Like you, it's not easy to sort of really think through that when you've just got this box of a house. So, I mean, a lot of the things I've seen with fixed price contracts, we've done a few recently where, you know, four stages into the reno, they're like, uh, we've had a bit of a blowout. We changed this, this, and this, and our last payment needs to increase a lot <laughs> because they've just, something's happened, right? And they're like, wouldn't it be nicer if we put the wall over here, not there? And that would give us all this extra room. And so that definitely happens along the way and it's interesting. I would definitely speak to your broker before you make those big changes because you can very easily get yourself in a mess if you do those changes and then you can't get the finance for it, which has been tied a couple of times for clients. Finance is one of the, the things that you really do need to consider at the front. Sometimes mm. people think that they can borrow to own a build. That's really tricky, like really yep. tricky, way more mm. expensive. So and I'm not giving financial advice, obviously, but um, kind of leveraging the full capacity. So if you're, you know, if you're borrowing against a house that's a million and you put your mm. 20% down or you'd probably try and take the loan for as much as possible and use an offset account, which gives you cash free to renovate if you can. Yeah. Something within your circumstance rather than get the loan you think you can afford because maybe you you had that money free so you only needed like a 400 grand loan or a smaller yep. loan and then try and re-borrow, that's a lot harder. So understanding cash flow and the way banks look at things and the payments that they like to make is also really important. They're going to prefer a builder and a fixed price contract over kind of any variations along the way. And then you're right, you can get stuck and and you're going to need to tip all your money in before they'll pay, which means that you can get really stuck if you make variations. Yeah, so you can easily get buy a property and you're like, okay, now I want to reno it, but it's not a full construction reno through a builder. It's just a lot of cosmetic things. And the bank will say, well, we can't do a construction contract because no construction company wants to do it. It's not big enough, but I haven't got enough in the bank and I can't re-borrow on the property and I can't get a personal loan. And so literally you can easily get stuck where you've got a property that needs reno, but you just can't get the funds for it until the property value goes up in value, which uh, is always you know hard to know when or if it's going to happen. But even if it does happen, a frustrating thing is we'll order evaluation for them and say, they bought it a million and now they think it's worth 1.4 because there's a recent sale. And then the vowel will come back at 1.25. And we're like, oh, you still can't do the reno because the vowels have come in low, which is inherently a problem. So it, you've really got to think that reno through first because a lot of clients I've seen just bought thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just, just do a reno. And then they can't get the money because there's no way to do it. So they have to live in this house that is desperate for a reno. Yeah, have you had that happen a lot, Chris? Because, I mean, you know, over the years I've met so many people who might say, yes, I've got a budget of $2 million, for instance, and if it's unrenovated, you know, you're like, oh, you know, I'll pay one five and then I'll, you know, use the rest to reno. And I'm like, hang on a minute, have you checked that that extra $500,000 in your purchasing budget would actually be available as cash to renovate? if you don't spend that much money, you know, and quite often they have no idea that they don't actually have that pool of money, that bucket to draw on. And it's like, yeah, fancy getting stuck in something that you always intended to renovate and and then can't. 
God, horrible. Well, that's where the never-ending renovation comes from, isn't it? Like the five-year reno where you've got to do this bit and yeah. then you've got to do that <laughs> bit. And, and actually there's nothing wrong with that when you're starting out, but I guess we get really impatient over time. So, you know, there's a few things here. If You, you know, I see a lot of people who want to jump to the very end point without kind of doing those those stepping stones. And I know, Veronica, mm-hmm. you run a course which helps people understand how to step through that process. Yes. Mm-hmm. Get it in the right <laughs> order. I'm sure yours is exactly the same. you got all these things you have to do and you get them out of order, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> well, it's all about the order, isn't it? Like the order of renovating makes a big difference. That person mm. doing the seven-year reno, one, that's a, that's a painful thing because you always got to say, what are we going to do next? But there's probably a lot of wasted cash in there because they've done the floors first and Maybe they should have waited to the end to do the floors or maybe they, you know, didn't do the the painting before they've done the electrics or something. So is there a certain process that you like to think if you're going to attack a reno, you first sort out the electrics, let's say, and then you do the the kitchen, what do you sort of, is there a process you like to sort of yeah, follow? Yeah, so, so we teach people to master plan and kind of understand what the priorities are, but the priorities will be both in terms of building and having to do things twice, but they'll also be in terms of livability. Yeah, that's so, right. you know, sometimes you just need to get to a certain stage to to move further. I mean, I live, one of those properties that you looked at, Veronica, I had, I'm, I moved in with my family and we were, you know, going through the planning process because we were divided, subdividing the block. But I didn't want to spend a lot on the house, but I needed to live in it for a couple of years as well. Mm. So for me, I ripped out the carpets and I painted the floors a beautiful navy colour, which won't appeal to a lot of people, but I didn't have to sell it like that. <laughs> but I, it was just a little bit of paint to get me through yeah. and some rugs and I didn't update, you know, so I was making it a home in the interim. So you're always going to need to kind of balance how you can get by living or how you can kind of create that home environment for you and your family versus what the most efficient use of your cash is. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Oh, look, I had it somewhat similar. I mean, the house I'm in now, I did a complete rebuild on a bit over a year ago, and but I had it rented out first and there were students living in it when I bought it and that was fine until the students even started complaining about various things and I was forced <laughs> to spend some money before I was ready mm. to do the full renovation. You know, so some of that was were, were things that needed to be done and, you know, were part of the renovation and some were then subsequently ripped out and thrown away, So, which I was always uncomfortable with but it was necessary and I just wasn't in control of that time frame. So some, you know, that's... Uh, unavoidable costs at times. What do you think though, you know, you talk about, I mean, it's obviously important not to overcapitalize and, and that's a big fear. I mean, Chris, you know, I mentioned it, you've mentioned it, Chris. How do you help people work out how to calculate whether they have or haven't and, and how to avoid it? Yeah, so sometimes people go in and they go, oh, I don't really care because I'm going to live in it, but I don't mm. really subscribe to that because no. – I don't know about you. I don't have a crystal ball. Like things can happen in our lives that are unexpected. And unfortunately, you know, we're getting to that age where sometimes things crop up and you didn't see that turn and and you might need to sell a house or something might need to happen. Now you don't want to have lost money in that process. So we've got a, a free guide. Actually, we've got a whole heap of resources. So if you are interested in kind of finding out more about some stuff like this, and I'll do send you to some downloadables if you want. We'll pop the link in the sh- in the show notes. Yep. Thanks, Veronica. There's a love it or leave it calculator because sometimes you're better off renovating your house and other times you're better off selling that house <laughs> and moving to a new one. Yeah. And, and there are personal things that factor into this, but if you can get the numbers out of your head and not in guesstimates and kind of we, we just give you basically – some ideas of things to put down, right? So, and this will go through things like, okay, we've got stamp duties, we've got selling costs, we've got moving costs, we've got 
somewhere to live. We've got a marketing value. Like we've got to put all these things in. Often we don't think about that. We might think about stamp duty, you know, rolling over loans and then work out what you're hoping to achieve or how much money you'd have to renovate there or to sell a house and try and change. Because really it's about what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to achieve a bigger backyard, you can't achieve that in your current location. So you probably have to move, right? Mm. But if you're trying to achieve more living space or a second floor, maybe that is achievable. So we kind of go through this, but what it will force you to do is look at the market value of houses around you that are selling and what you can actually buy versus what you can turn your house into and what it would sell for. And obviously there's a lot of nuance in this and you guys are helping people through that and kind of understand the property market. But you can kind of reach out to people around you. You can talk to real estate agents and and you can kind of map out what you want to do and see what it would be worth at the end. Again, all of this stuff takes time and effort, mm. but it is definitely worth doing and you're going to have to put some guesstimates in. Obviously, people are in like a course like ours or have access to you guys, you know, they can speak to them and say, okay, well, what can I get or how much is this renovation going to to cost and we'll, we'll map them through it. But you... <laughs> You do have to start somewhere and, you know, ringing a few people or understanding what people have done and how much that costs. Like this is important information, but what it costs for me to build around here is not going to be the same as what it costs Veronica to build around her area or Chris to build around his area. So it's all market driven and all localized, which is why you really have to learn how to do it yourself. You know, you talk about working out what it's worth now, what potentially it could be worth once you've renovated. And we talk about overcapitalizing and understanding what your property is worth now and what it potentially would be worth after you renovate. But one of the things I see a lot in, particularly in inner city areas, is that people overcapitalize by basically trying to turn a house into too much, trying to make it do too much. So Mm. I recently, only just a couple of weeks ago, looked at a property in Camperdown, for instance. It's a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house, you know, in a really good street. But the problem is the living space is minuscule. One of the bedrooms has only like a skylight in sort of this weird roof basically. It doesn't, it's not a real bedroom. The the garden's a handkerchief that does have rear lane and they could have had parking and a garden if they didn't extend the house out so far. So they've made all these compromises just so they can say, I've got four bedrooms. Mm. And fundamentally, they've got a four bedroom house that people who want a four bedroom house won't want because the living space isn't big enough. The garden isn't big enough and and there's no parking. And you think, well, they could have had a fabulous three bedroom home, really well balanced, that would have been worth more and, you know, and had more people interested in it than this massively unbalanced compromised four bedroom house. And I think that's one of the things that people do unwittingly, they think that bedrooms add value and they also will put too big a house on too small a block of land if they're allowed to in certain areas. Mm. I I agree. But what are the, like there were a number of points along that way that they could have checked themselves and could have understood that yeah. that wasn't going to be the right outcome for that suburb. A, they could have done their own research. Mm what's selling. Like there are times that you should back yourself, but if you're not an expert in it, then really try and seek some advice. (laughs) And people don't know what they don't know though. You know what I mean? We all think we're experts. You can always reach out to, (laughs) yeah, everyone does. You can always reach out to real estate agents and say, okay, well, here's my plan. What what do you see as issues here? And a good estate agent will give you some feedback. I mean, I do this. Very true. Any plan that I put together, I work alongside my team. Now, my team looks like a real estate agent because he's going to have to sell it and he will give me critical feedback. And that feedback I might agree or disagree with or argue with, but, mm. you know, I at least the feedback's being sought. You know, there was one that I took to him, you know, a, a month or two ago and I had seen that the laundry was too small or it was a one-sided laundry for a four-bedroom family house. He's like, laundry's too small. People don't like that. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're looking for them to give you that. And I'm like, okay, well, which one do you like? Do you like this one or this one? You're looking for their expert opinion. And you can take that to a number or if you've got one that you trust, you should yeah. always check that beforehand because mm. a sm- too small bedroom or 
a, a too small lounge room, they know, they know that that's going to be a difficult sell. And for them, especially if they're going to be selling this house, they really, it's in their best interest to really help you drive that up. Some of the conversations we can have is, do I need to put you know, am I going to need to do an outdoor area here? Or is it okay? Pull or not to pull? The ultimate question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we've we've got these or single car garage or one and a half garage versus double car garage. You know, in my area, it's fine to do a single car garage, but that would be a definite no no in other people's. It's very true. Uh, the thing is, though, that I think what happens is that whole sunk cost thing. That if you get that advice too late into the planning process, you're you're too wedded to what you've already, you know, either got approved or, or mm. literally got all drawn up and ready to submit to council. And so the, getting changes is like too late. So I think it's that concept stage people need to go and get that advice and 100% agree, find a really good local agent that sells a lot, that, that will work with you. I used to do that when I was a sales agent. I had you know, that my sort of renovator mm. clients and, and I know my builder here, he does, they do a lot of development as well. I know their agent and they work very closely together. It's, it's, it, you can see the difference, you know, cause I can see properties that have been well renovated and brought to market with that, that cooperation versus those that have not sought any advice. And it's, fundamentally got a sticking point that means that they might only have a couple of buyers, maybe one versus another one that's got five, six, seven buyers on it. Yeah. So even different suburbs, it's like, do you use an architect or do you use an interior designer? Some Mm. people don't want to spend the money on paying Mm. experts, but experts will help you achieve the, the right price if you don't engage them and, and it's not your skill set. I mean, how many townhouse developments have we seen with the same black and grey colour scheme that speaks to no one. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that actually. I mean, this, how do you think like the dangers in in going too deep down your personal preferences of style can, you know, because at the end of the day you don't sell it with the furniture but you do put fixtures and fittings in and the kitchen's a certain way and the bathroom and even the colour you paint the house. How do you sort of temper your own personal preferences when uh, you're going to live in it, but also potentially when you're going to sell it one day, it's got to sort of appeal to the market. Like how do you think the problems of styling or or following your personal taste? Yeah. um, (laughs) It depends whether you've got good taste or not. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Everyone thinks they're a better than average uh, driver, right? (laughs) And everyone thinks they've got great taste and money, unfortunately, I think the more money someone's got, the less taste they've got in my mind. But um. oh, yeah, sometimes. But this is <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's like have a look, and, and all of this can be done with research. So have a look, and we don't, you know, people won't always get it one hundred percent right. But have a yeah. look at the standout properties in your area, hmm. so you can actually see what people are drawn to. And again, it's area specific. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, which houses have. 50 people at every or 50 groups through every inspection and yep. which ones have, you know, a handful. Mm. Anyone that hits high and even if you go back in time with your real estate agents, work with them. Now, okay, it could be location. Yeah. It could be a number of factors but sometimes the style or the style of that home is really hitting, resonating with people. And so the ones that stand out, I pay particular attention to. The standout values, I'm like, why? Why this home? For my area, now, Veronica, Mm. you picked up on this, you know, it's heritage facade. People grew up with the idea that they wanted to live in a cute little cottage with a great renovated, you know, modern extension. Mm. Yeah. So that's going to sell really well in my market. Yeah. Not in everyone's market. And then some colour schemes and some ways people put the floor plan together work really well and people are really drawn to it. So keep a mental note. People have done Mm. this before. Yeah. Use what they've put together as a starting place for you. And if you are completely different to everyone else, ask yourself whether that's a good thing or not, whether this is an area where you're truly an expert or perhaps, (laughs) um, you know, you're guessing. Are you using black taps in your renovations at the moment? Uh, new. No, <laughs> um, they're, they're everywhere here. It's like a, black taps will be out of fashion very soon. Mark my words. Oh, you know, and I did five years black. ago. So the thing is, you, you're trying to guess the market. So for me, it pays to be really on top of what's coming out. So I'm looking mm-hmm. at, 
I'm always looking at the top designers, what's coming out, what the awards win. And unfortunately, that means that I always feel substandard because I'm looking at all these amazing projects and I'm like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) But we're also kind of picking those trends. But this is our full-time game. If this isn't your full-time game, you don't have that luxury of time, Mm. but you can get someone involved to help you. Or you can Mm. do you know, an hour and a half of a style consult or a consult, you know, we do this with people as well, like a consult for an hour and a half. We're not picking the finishes for you, but we review what you're doing. We'll review the floor plan and say, this is wrong, this is wrong. You know, like, have you thought about that? You know, there's an opportunity. Lots of people design without consideration for light, which is a big no-no in our minds. It's like the floor plan works, that's really great, but there's no northern light. That's going to feel really dark. This area doesn't feel good. And that understanding how a house is going to feel is what an architect has spent, you know, six, seven years training for. But (laughs) also, you know, the difference between being able to sell that house because people buy a house that feels good to them and the ones that they don't get a great feeling of it can have everything on paper but it's just not going to it's not going to get across the line especially if the day you do your open home and you only got three of them potentially two of them or and those days maybe not the weather you're hoping to sell your home in right you know it was an overcast day it was raining and your place is not that sunny day that's going to potentially get that time that perfect little bit of light at 11.15 when the open home is, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and so you, you've got to be super careful that, you know, because you only get, that's out of your control, right? And, yeah. and you've got to be like almost the home's great in that weather. So imagine what it would be like on a sunny day, you know, and uh, and maybe the next open home, it's still the same weather, which is quite common in your market. When you say that, are you saying Melbourne generally, or do you cut it no. down to a certain pocket? Oh, no. So when I'm talking my market, I'm in the inner north in Melbourne. So we've got a different set of conditions to say the southeastern or the eastern suburbs. Like they're they're looking for different things, you know, like the size of houses that I build here would not cut it in one of those suburbs because they're much bigger blocks and they go, these are tiny. Whereas here they go, oh, these are quite spacious. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, but I agree with you. It's kind of understanding the feeling and and a lot of that stuff, you're spending a lot of money on climate control and hydronic heating or, you know, inbuilt. Like we're putting together um, two, our two projects we're running at the moment are seven-star energy-rated homes. They don't have gas on them. They're using top kind of fixtures and finishings. The heating units are kind of this brand-new kind of Samsung technology technology that's come out we've got all this stuff in it that you're like well is the purchaser going to know or notice I'm like yeah they're going to feel it yeah Mm. so anytime they walk into these homes they're going to be the right temperature but also they'll go back through and they will check these things because people want to know now scarcity will drive a point in this and I don't know if I'm selling in a top market or a you know if the market's going to be flooded with stock and there'll be a lot of competition and I've got to stand out amongst that but I know that how people feel and the energy that they that home brings back to them which is light and it's all those different factors how it feels is important to getting them across the line. We kind of say by the time they've hit the kitchen, they're they're working out where their cutlery is going. Mm. Then they're in a good spot. But if they don't <laughs> care, then, <laughs> you know, you really haven't hit the mark with them. You can only put cutlery one place, though, can't you? <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> the platters, <laughs> where, the, serving, where the platters are going. <laughs> oh, the cutlery, okay. <laughs> yeah. Have you got a uh, property dumbo for us? I'm sure you've got thousands yeah. in the renovating game. It's pretty easy pickings. Yeah, it is. Do you know what? The biggest thing that we see come across our desk is people that want to do a subdivision or have kind of gone through the process to do a subdivision and the subdivision costs don't stack up. You cannot subdivide Mm. every, even if the council will let you subdivide a house, Mm. they don't always stack up. Sometimes the cost to build both of them, and actually we had one that we were helping someone run, run through, and she would have done all this effort and all this work to lose 300 grand. Wow. That would have been the ultimate value. Mm. There's a lot of false hope pinned on subdivisions and, and you know, building duplexes. And, and I do t- talk to a lot of people who sort of decided it's the next level in terms of active property investing. 
And I'm mm. like, oh, boy, boy, if you don't Hand know me. what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll point them Not in your way. direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so it, it's about really getting those feasibilities right and checking them off. You know, in that resources page we talked about, there's a $7 feasibility template. You can download that. Just run your numbers and understand what your numbers are. That's not really going to help you work out what they are. You have to do some work. But the biggest mistake where you see people taking is, you know, not doing their research. And I got, you guys that have the same, it's like they go into this and they kind of either get frustrated and they just buy something in the end or they're just not running the numbers or they're not open-minded enough to look at different scenarios. So they want the best house on the best street that looks like it's really easy to renovate, but so does everyone else. Mm. Yeah. Exactly so that right. house is rarely going to be your best option. Very true. The problem is that there's overwhelm, you know, and when we have decision overwhelm, often we get decision fatigue and then uh, or so I should say information overwhelm leads to decision fatigue and that just leads to sometimes just checking out and not really making properly thought out through decisions and just knee-jerking. You know, I see it time and time again and I'm, and I'm sure it's the same on the renovation side or the develop, the small-time development side, but I think a lot of mum and dad sort of property developers think that, you know, how hard can it be? <laughs> It's just, I know, I've known people who got caught out by, the, you know, the problems and the trickiness with subdividing and services and, and all yep. sorts of, you know, ways that they get stuck and then they thought they were going to do a Torrens title subdivision, all of a sudden it's a strata title subdivision. What does that mean? And all the unknowns. And, oh, I had no idea so that this could happen. system that's 30 grand. Oh, I didn't put that in my budget. Oh, the build cost has gone up or I can't get mm. it built for $1,000 a square metre. But someone said I could. You know, my neighbour's best friend's boyfriend did it. Yeah. Um, I'm like, well, he's probably not reliable. <laughs> That's wishful thinking <laughs> at its greatest. <laughs> I mean, there was a friend slash client who's, you know, grown up in development and done massive apartment blocks, done all sorts of stuff. And he sort of runs the company now and he was doing, you know, the building game sort of gone quiet, right, in that sort of a couple of years ago, especially in the apartment space. So he's like, oh, look, I'll just go do a few duplexes and middle ring sort of renos. And one he was doing in your pocket, Veronica, and um, he just done, didn't realise the electricity sort of needs and what it needs to upgrade the electricity and the cost and that completely blew out his profit. Mm. And he's, and this is a guy that does it all the day, every day. He's done feasibility studies on $30, $40 million projects. Different um, scale. And, rest, and just missed one thing that he just, and he's just like, you know, just laughs at himself really because he's just like, I do this, but then that cost plus a couple of other things that didn't go to plan have basically killed his profit and he's basically just can't get wait to get rid of these things because that whole process is kind of not really been all the effort. And I think that's something that can easily pop up. Just one thing that you hadn't thought through that, you know, completely blows that whole energy and effort and Mm. stress over a few years. Yes. So one final thing I was just going to ask you, in terms of materials, you know, what are you sort of seeing there? Because I think uh, something I'm noticing, uh, you know, you can factor in your build and someone can factor in the cost of labour, but the cost of materials also changes, right? Like in terms of timber costs or cement or et cetera. Do you find over time these have shifted a lot or do you think it's just sort of a recent phenomenon? Oh, I think they've been, they've always been, you know, for the last 20 years they've been going up. And I guess what's important to understand is that Australia is a really great place to be a trade, you know, as opposed to different different areas of the world. Trades and materials are, are quite good but trades are great in terms of what they pay but materials often need to come from overseas so Mm. some of the issues we're having at the moment is the timber mills can't keep up locally with the supply and then you've got you know a boom in you know construction or renovation in america which is paying more for the timber that we'd normally import from places like new zealand and so that's getting shipped out to the u.s so we can't get timber and i have never seen a timber shortage like this in the construction industry but it means we've all got to think about it and maybe the question that people are going to be asking is do I need to start my renovation right now when I've got no timber or do I put it on hold and start next year or is it going to balance now there's no given answers to this because we Mm. we haven't run out of timber before like actually run out you can't get any at the moment 
<laughs> which is all right if you've got a couple of packs on timber but if you stay you know on a job or if you're towards the end phases of a job but if you're at the beginning you mm. you can't do that or you're going to need to make some compromises do you change to steel studs mm. you know so flexibility is required you couldn't predict that and I guess that's the thing about developing for profit or developing in mm. general is that these things you can't predict and you need to have enough I guess, enough profit in your projects to be able to ride that out. Now, lucky for us, if you bought something say at the beginning of last year, the, the you know, in the right suburbs that the, you need done your value and it was sought after, you, generally speaking, we might be looking at a bit of a gain right now. Mm. Sorry, I know you don't like generals, but that's kind of, you know, so that could potentially outrise your construction costs, but then you'll have to buy again. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of that. So you're going to have to lose that. That bit's going to be out of it anyway. It's a tricky time to be building, I guess, is the answer, Chris. I don't. When you say your profit margin, what do you sort of think? Like clients will sort of say, oh, we're going to spend 300 and we think it's going to potentially add 350 and I'm like, well, oh, that's bloody tight. What do you sort <laughs> well, of take, think? Add 350 in total. That wouldn't Spend 300 to get 350. <laughs> no. Or- that, well, I probably wouldn't play that game. Yeah, you know, if you're spending three hundred on the house in total, and you, oh, do you know what? Sometimes people need to get in and learn. And the first projects, it's okay to really make not a lot, mm. but yeah, as you start to scale up again, it's about the value proposition. It's about how you change things and working in a market where there's not a lot of competition. You know, like do you? join together with someone, do a JV at this price point where I've got kind of maybe five people working in that market or am I kind of sitting amongst everyone else who's kind of overpaying for the ideal renovator's delight? Mm. In this current area, you really have to be looking off market because renovator's delights at auction are going to be really tricky to acquire. If you're getting them right now, you're paying a lot and I can't make those numbers work and I'm a builder. So I don't know how other people are making them work either. Maybe they're just relying on market, keeping on going up. Well, that's it. Sometimes you are competing against a builder, right? A guy, you know, or girl, you know, basically, you know, buying a job or buying work for their building company. And, you know, they're willing to pay 2.2, but, you know, the rent is only going to cost them 400, but, you know, every man and his dog are going to have to pay 700 for that. So, you know what I mean? Like it's it's that Maybe, type of. Maybe, but I don't think, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is that, that uh, people think builders' margins are a lot higher than what they end yeah. up being. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're tied to that project for 10 years. You need yeah. to go back and fix stuff. Yeah. You know, you're paying your wages, you're paying all that. Like the margins just aren't that that good. And builders at the moment, if you're buying, you know, work, there's an underlying issue with your your, your, um, <laughs> your structure <laughs> because it's a builder's market. It's really no hard choice. to get a builder at the moment. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, hard yeah. to get materials, hard to get a builder, hard to buy a property. it is but it's it's I think the decision making around this is different if you're buying because this is you know what you want your business to be effectively which is to renovate to sell that's very different you're a developer versus if you're buying to renovate and live in and Mm -hmm. so the yes you don't want to overcapitalize you do want to work out what you know what you paid for what the cost of building is going to be what it's ultimately worth so you want to make sure that you make sensible decisions but at the same time the risk there is not so great because you don't have to sell it within a certain period of time in order to realize that and then to to go on to your next project so you know that it's uh, it's not an excuse won't apply either Right. True. So your sales, you know, like all these kind of add-in numbers, you don't actually have to apply until you sell. True. It's not an excuse not to pay attention to that though because like you said earlier, things change and you might find yourself in a situation where you do need to sell. So obviously it's a bit like, you know, people come to me to say I want to buy a family home and talk about capital growth. Oh, it doesn't matter because I'm going to live in it. A bit the same mm. as, you know, it doesn't really yeah. matter if I overcapitalise. I was like, well, yeah, it does because even if – circumstances don't change for you to put you in a situation where you have to sell and you don't want to, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years time, when you are in a situation where you want to downsize, your choices and your options then are going to be vastly better if you make good decisions now as well. And I think the same thing does apply to your renovation decisions. So you might not know you overcapitalized, but at some point it will bite. Rebecca, have you seen clients where they potentially have overcapitalized, right? They bought a 
don't know, nice frontage in Northcote, right? And they went and did, you know, really top-end Renault on it. But at that stage when they purchased, Northcote wasn't really attracting that type of buyer. And so if they sold in, I don't know, 2015, let's call it, those buyers weren't buying in Northcote. But in 2020 or 2018, Northcote was the hot suburb. And so someone's overcapitalized in the short term, but then the market sort of and the demographic, the price rises has really shifted and now they've all all of a sudden haven't overcapitalized. Have you sort of seen the market demographic shift where it saves people? Yeah, it can That's luck do. though. It, it, it's, it's <laughs> luck. I mean, that inner ring, I guess if you kind of, you know, you're right, like no one wanted to live in Northcote in 2000. Now it's like a place to be. Yeah. But, but you don't, I guess I've seen a lot of people get burnt and I've mm. seen a lot of people think that they're doing the right thing and then they've kind of developed a property and they've had to sell for whatever reason and they've lost money. Yeah. It doesn't always work for people. And I know you talk to people about, you know, you've seen people buy something and it not rise at all in 10 years. And people think that property is this magic bullet and it can be if you do it right, but it's like anything. Yeah. You yeah. have to invest some time. I wouldn't go to the share market and throw a whole heap of money at it and expect that to go up, right? I need Other to know do that what too. I'm going. <laughs> you know, well, no, I know, but I need to know what I'm like, what I'm doing with it. And you know, people invest all this time and energy in getting their job right, and yet with their personal wealth and their personal savings and getting their family ahead, they're so haphazard. And I think that needs to change. We need to put more effort into value that we can create personally than what we're doing for other people, in my opinion. Well, on that note, thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> it's a good note to end on, like with everything to do with property, you do it well. Like you say, you can you can do very well and you don't do it well and you can actually cost yourself a lot and really set yourself back financially. Now, we really appreciate your time and we will put the link to your resources in the show notes and obviously anybody who's interested in in renovating, I think that it's a fantastic idea to go and learn, go and understand what you're in for and and minimise those risks and and understand the costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having us. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... I'll just give you a a quick hint as to what I think made a very successful renovation for me personally. And I've done three and three very different types of renovations, two with my own home and one was for an investment property. And the most recent one, I had a great relationship with the builder and I am proud to say the builder says that I'm their best client. (laughs) And the reason I'm their best client is not because I was nicest, because that's certainly not my personality, I don't think straight up, but (laughs) I'm not sweet and kind. I didn't come and bring them tea and beer. But what it was is that I really made my decisions upfront. And the thing that Rebecca said is where money is lost on a fixed price contract is at the beginning. And I had an architect and I had an interior designer. Okay. But, and I did make that commitment that I wasn't going to make changes. Once I decided on the you know, all the finishes and all the rest of it, all the all the decisions that I made in the lead up to actually putting out tender to builders, I made that absolute commitment to myself that I wasn't going to change because that is true that where I see a lot of cost blowouts is in people chopping and changing their mind mid-build. Not only did it keep things within budget, there were a couple of little blowouts who were unforeseen. One was basically when they were digging and looking for rock, there wasn't any, so we had to get peers put in that we wouldn't have had to put in. So there was a, you know, bit of money spent there. But other than that, there was really nothing hidden, no surprises, no nasty surprises. So it it finished on budget. Now, it also finished a month early. And I think that was a really interesting thing as well. And one of the reasons it, it finished early was because these builders, they sort of factored in most clients chop and change their mind or delay making decisions around various things throughout the process. And so they had factored that in. So I actually got to move in a month early compared to what we thought, which is, as it turned out, brilliant because I literally moved in a month before lockdown last year. So it worked out out rather marvellously. But what I have to say, my big takeaway is make your decisions early, invest the time making, you know, doing all your research, getting good advice, and so that you can commit to those decisions and then don't vacillate. 
Yeah, I guess it's uh, when you, you had the advantage of sort of, you know, getting that expert advice from the architect and they were like prodding you and saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And you're like, oh, okay. And then, um, and then the interior design has probably helped you, you know, speed up that process, right? I think the, the challenge we're finding with renovating is we haven't got the architect because we're not doing that sort of build or we've got an interior designer, but then it's kind of like, all right, now we've got to do windows. Okay, well, I don't know nothing about windows. Mm. And so now you've got to Start. sort of figure out. Yeah, and it's like a... You've only got so much mental capacity when you're balancing you know, family and work and, and things like that. And so absolutely, I think it's about sort of, you know, getting as much of that research done while you've still got that time rather than as soon as you kick off the reno and then bang, I've got to think about this next thing because that's when you make mistakes. You pick the wrong product, you potentially overpay, you do things twice, et cetera. So it's, it's investing a lot up front, I find, even if you're doing a reno, I think that would be my advice for myself <laughs> is to start thinking through these things and do your research rather than when you get to that sort of stage and there's a time pressure and, yeah, more likely to make mistakes. Please join us for our next episode. We're actually having a very ambitious conversation and tackling an enormous elephant in the room. We're discussing property affordability or housing affordability and housing policy. What's going wrong in Australia at the moment? And as we watch the gap between those who have and those who have not widen, what are the long-term problems that we're heading into? If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.